Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. You, um, you know who Harry Houdini is, right? <clears throat> the illusionist, the stage magician, the great Harry Houdini. Um, among other things, among, besides being a great magician, he was also a debunker of psychics in his day. Spiritualists that would hold seances. Houdini would go, and his goal was to expose them and show that they were fakes and phonies, that they were frauds. Sometimes he would, he would tie off his legs with a rubber band or a strap of some kind and let his legs swell up, and it would be painful, but it would be extremely sensitive to any movement, even air movement. And so as he sat through the seance, if anybody was moving something under the table to try and fool the people that were attending, Houdini would feel that, jump up and flip on the light and expose the whole thing as a fake. Well, later in his life, I think he, like a moth, flew a, flew a little too close to the flame. He attended too many seances and he began to think, well, maybe there might be something to it. To the point that at the end of his life, he made his wife promise that on the anniversary of his death every year, that she would hold a seance and try and contact him, and he would try and speak to her. And so for many years, his wife held those seances on that anniversary, trying to contact him because she wanted to hear somebody speak from the dead. She was waiting for a voice beyond the grave. The voice, I have to tell you, never came. Well, we're doing something not at all unlike that, but with a whole lot more likelihood that it will succeed. Last week, we began talking about what would happen if dead churches could talk. And we're looking specifically at six now extinct, long dead churches out of business for a long time, but they have something to say to us. We saw last week in the church that we looked at, a church that met in the city, the great city of Ephesus, a once prominent church, maybe the most prominent church of its day. The Ephesian church spoke to us, and we saw that they received a condemnation, and it was severe, and the warning they received was severe to this long-dead church. And we found last week that that long-dead church of Ephesus, it had a message for each of us. Because they were told, the Lord speaking, Jesus talking to them, I have this against you, you have left your first love. And so the message of that long dead church spoke to us last week, return to your first love, or you too will one day be like us, a dead church, an extinct church. But they were told, and we're told as well, that if you return to your first love, Christ, and you put him first in your life, you will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Well, you may want to listen to that message if you didn't hear it, or you may want to listen to it again. But it was worth listening to. Dead churches have something to say to us. You know, we've all known, we've all known horror stories from employers. Maybe you have been the person who had to hire people, and they didn't work out, and and employers will sometimes have a string of difficult people that they're sorry they hired and they're just not functioning right. 
And then all of a sudden, after that string of difficult employees, there will be a hire on who is a conscientious worker. They show up on time. They don't ask for their paycheck earlier to leave before quitting time. And they're able to complete the task without somebody hanging over and giving constant oversight. And what happens with that employer and that employee is, you know what happens. That employer values that decent employee tremendously. But you've known parents in the same spot too, right? They have two or three knothead kids that are difficult to control. And life is difficult and, and exhausting with those kids. And, and those parents become experts at subtracting everything from the number 18 because that's the magic year when this is all going to change. And then comes the golden child. And they are so glad for that child. Well, you've seen it happen. We're looking at a church today, the church at Smyrna. I want you to turn in the book of Revelation to the second chapter. We're looking at a church that is different from all of the others. Smyrna is in a category by itself different from all of the other six that we'll look at. And with this church, there is no warning because there is no condemnation like we saw last week. With that church, you've left your first love. You don't get any of that with this church. This is the golden child of the first century churches. Now, every week, we're going to use essentially the same outline as we look in this revelation. And let me remind you, that this is a revelation not of St. John. This is not a revelation of the end times. When you're involved in this letter, it is not a revelation of all kind of harem, scarum, and prophecies and what will happen at the end of time. But this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a pulling back the curtain. That's what the word means. Apocalypsis, apocalypse. In our day, we've made, a, made apocalypse mean an end time event where everything blows up. But the word really means to pull back the curtain and see what Jesus is really like. We thought we knew him as he walked along the shores of Galilee and healed and helped and fed. But now we really see what he's really like. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And in this revelation of Jesus Christ, there is a message to this golden child of the churches. And we're using the same outline every week. We'll talk about a description of Jesus. You'll see it in a moment as he introduces himself to the church. And then there will be something they do right. There's a commendation. Then there is a condemnation. Then there's a warning. And then there's a promise to each and every church. But with this one, there's no warning. With the other churches, there are plenty of warnings. Unless you repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. I will put you out of business, Jesus tells one church, unless you repent. He tells another church, turn now, and I mean now, or I'm coming, and I'm going to come quickly. I, I, I will make war against your church. To another one, he says, I will throw you on a bed of sickness and trouble and terrible trials unless you turn back to me. To yet another, he says, if you don't change, I'm going to appear and I'm going to come to you like a thief, and I'm going to take what is valuable. But the worst warning he gives to the last of the churches, he tells that last church in the series, change now, change now, and quit playing religion games, or I will spit you out of my mouth. 
But with this church, the golden church, Smyrna, there's no condemnation here. And so there's no warning because this church is entirely different. We're seeing a church here with which Jesus is entirely pleased. He's very happy with the suffering church. And so, as we pick it up in the 8th verse, 2nd chapter, we're going to find that he makes two incredible promises, not one. But two incredible promises. So see if you can pick them out and see if you can answer the question as we go through these verses, what does Smyrna have to tell Fairfax? And to the angel, that would be the leader, the pastor of the church in Smyrna, and at this time, it may have been a gentleman by the name of Polycarp who will, who will die for Christ some years later, who's been a faithful disciple of the Apostle John, and he is perhaps now the pastor, the shepherd, the angel of the church in Smyrna. And here's what you're to write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. That's a description of Jesus. He's the one who always has been and always will be, who once was dead. They, they plunged him to death is what it literally means, but he sprang back to life. That's Jesus. And he says this, I know your tribulations, church, and I know your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not. In this particular case, when it talks about those who are Jews, this is a title of honor and not a derogatory title. Down through the ugly history of mankind, to call somebody a Jew, to make fun of the Jew, that was a derogatory title, but here it's a title of honor. Because there are those who say they are, and they are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And Jesus is well aware of what a thorn in the side of this church they are. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And so they're going to suffer something that will come directly from the hand and the mind and the spirit of the evil one. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. It will be severe, but it will be short. Be faithful unto death, Jesus says, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So besides dying naturally, which is awful, there is the possibility of dying forever, and that's worse. So there's the letter to the golden child, to the church of churches, to the church that has no condemnation and no warning, but it has two incredible promises. Well, what is that church saying to us? What, is, what does Smyrna have to say to Fairfax? Well, I think one of the things it has to say and tell us is Jesus doesn't miss a thing. Do you catch that there? Jesus does not miss a thing. He says in the ninth verse, I know. There's just a fragment of a phrase that is so packed and is so dense. He says to this tormented church, I know, I know. I remember years and years ago, I was in high school and I saw another boy across the street being tormented by yet another kid <clears throat> who was a little bit bigger than him. And this kid being tormented was 14 or 15 years old. And the other kid just kept poking at him, literally with a stick. 
and kept calling him names and pushing him. And the kid didn't want to have anything to do with it, but the first kid wouldn't leave him alone. And so finally he had had enough, and he shoved him backwards and knocked him to the ground. Just as the boy now on the ground, the tormentor's uncle, came out the door and saw him fall to the ground. He didn't know anything that had gone on before, but he ran over and he picked up the suffering kid and threw him bodily into a big patch of thorn bushes. And he was injured. He was bleeding. He was hurt. He was cut. His clothes were torn. Plus, he had been ill-treated. He didn't deserve what he had gotten. And I'll never forget that kid getting up and telling that uncle that had thrown him into the bushes and it hurt him pretty badly. You just don't know. You, you don't know. And that uncle didn't know. He didn't know what had happened before. He didn't know that boy's pain. He did not know what he had to endure. But Jesus says here in two very simple words, everything this church needs to know, that he does not miss a thing. He says, I know. I know. Jesus knows what you have. You see? Our life sometimes as a believer is a battle, isn't it? It's warfare. Sometimes it's open warfare with the enemy. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. You've got to realize that we follow a Savior who was crucified for loving without conditions. That's why they killed him. And so we face intense opposition, and that should not surprise us. When you think about it, we don't have to look any further than the temptation of Jesus. When he's tempted by the enemy there in the desert, and the enemy shows him all of the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and he tells them, if you bow down and worship me, I have the authority to give this to you because it was given to me, and I can pass it on to anybody I want. As you look at history, you know that the enemy has been generous with some really ugly people in passing on the kingdoms of this world. He offered them to Jesus, and Jesus doesn't quibble with him over that. He allows him that this is your kingdom, this world. You realize what that means for us as believers, that every single day, every second of every single day, you and I are living, listen, behind enemy lines. And so we should not be surprised that our life is a conflict with this enemy of our souls. You don't have to look any further than Jesus' temptation. We're in a fight. And we're not fighting the entertainment industry, and we're not fighting political enemies, you and I. We're not fighting atheists. We're not even fighting Muslims. You know who we're fighting? We're fighting the enemy. Look at what the Word has to say in the book of Ephesians. Paul is talking about a thing called spiritual warfare. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness. That's what our struggle is against. It's not against the entertainment people or political people or atheists or Muslims. It's against the enemy of our souls. We are in a conflict for our life, and the Lord knows that. He knows. He told this church, I know what you're going through. He knows what you have, and he knows what you don't have. Poverty is a word that is sometimes associated with believers and with the church. We are poor people. We are lacking in fun. 
We're lacking in influence. We're backward. We're lacking in good sense. We're ignorant. We're gullible believers in an invisible Santa in the sky. How unfortunate we are, say so many in the world. How can you believe such nonsense, you poor things? The world considers us poor. That's how many people see us, you see. But Jesus says, you're rich. You're not poor. You're rich. Paul was absolutely thunderstruck to realize, and he reports it to us. He says, to me, the very least of the saints, grace was given to present the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's what he called it. The riches of Christ that you cannot find the bottom to. That's what we have. We're rich. We're not poor. He'll say in another place, he'll talk about the riches of his grace, which he lavishes on us, you see. And in that Ephesian letter again, he says, oh, the depth. Listen, listen to his heart. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how unfathomable are his ways. In a long letter to Rome, he wrote that. You can't get to the bottom of his riches, the depth of the riches of Christ. We are not poor, we're rich. And then Jesus knows this about us too. He knows what we have to hear. He knows what we have to live with. There's a character in Scripture. He kind of does a walk-on and a walk-off. But he's referred to as righteous. The Jewish rabbis call him a zaddik. He is one of the righteous ones. His name is Lot, and he's called that. In 2 Peter, in that little letter, he's called Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot lived in a city that we know all about, the city of Sodom, or we think we know all about. Do you realize that there was more going on in Sodom than what we often talk about going on in Sodom? It was not just a case of homosexuality. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, it talks about some of the other things that were happening that caused judgment to fall upon that city, and it wasn't exclusively one sin. It was a number of things that were not right. If you, if you look in Ezekiel 16, he talks about some of those things that were happening there. He talks about things like this. Behold, this was the guild of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance. It wasn't just homosexuality. They had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. In other words, they had means. But she did not help the poor and the needy. It goes on to talk about other abominations. But did you realize Sodom was judged not only for the homosexual sin, but it was judged for her arrogance and for the fact that she did not help those that are Jesus' special friends, the poor and the needy, the poor and the needy. In that same chapter of Ezekiel, and maybe we'll talk about it later sometime, he says something that's never talked about in connection with Sodom. He's talking about restoration and the unthinkable. At the end of that chapter, Sodom is forgiven at the end of the day. Full repentance, full forgiveness. Well, that will be then. But for now, 
Think about how difficult it is to have to listen to a broken world, to a sinful world, to, to all of the bawling and the ugliness of a lost world that is in rebellion against a loving God and a broken-hearted Christ. We have to listen to that. It's hard to take the wholesale damage and hurt that the world dishes out all of the time, every day, all day. The actions of our broken world and our, and our badly broken lives of those who strut and pretend and rage. And we have to listen to all of that. And we have to live with all of that. More than one thing vexes the soul of righteous Lot. There's more than one thing that vexes our soul. How it all must wound the tender heart of Jesus knowing that we have to listen to that too. And it, and it wounds us too. But back to our friend Lot. Because he had to suffer in that broken place. Here's what the word says. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, he felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. The Lord knows what you have to live with. And he knows what you have to hear. He knows. He knows what it is to be oppressed by the conduct of unprincipled men, unrighteous people. And this man's righteous soul was tormented. It was grieved by all he had to hear and live with, and live through. And that's us a lot of times, isn't it? As we go along in life, things swirl around us that we don't understand. We only know they're bad. We go along listening to all of the negatives and that drumbeat of rebellion every day. And maybe we don't really say much, but there's an unsettledness deep down inside of us, isn't there? And then there's the ugliness that we have to see and the constant pain giving and the absorption in silliness and the violence in homes and on the street and the wounding of children and the scarring of our planet and the filling of the airwaves with dirtiness that doesn't so much make you gasp as it makes you grieve, usually in silence. We know what that's like. And Jesus knows, you see, that we suffer in silence. Let me take you to a very fine piece of poetry. You'll find it in the Psalms, in the songbook of the Word. And the psalmist has this to say in the 56th Psalm. He's talking about this very issue. He's speaking to the Lord and he says, Lord, you have taken account of my wanderings and you put my tears in a bottle. He knows. He knows what it is we live with. You may want to read that whole psalm later on and you'll find out it's exactly what we've been talking about. Jesus knows what you have to live with. He says, I know. And he doesn't miss a thing. Now this church is also telling us something else. It's telling us that there's so much you will never have to experience. You know, when, when an adult comes to Christ... That's a wonderful occasion. And we say, a soul has been saved, and that is true. But when a child comes to Christ, we say that is a better occasion because not only has a soul been saved, a life has been saved. 
You understand what I mean by that? That child will never have to experience all of the things that some in this room experienced before we wised up and came to Christ. A life has been saved. I'm just finishing. In fact, I finished it yesterday afternoon. A book that I do not recommend to you called Trials of the Monkey. I picked it up by accident, and it's called an accidental memoir. It's by a fellow who is a screenplay writer for Hollywood, very talented guy, atheist to the core. He happens to be the great-grandson of Charles Darwin, and he set out on a quest a few years ago to go to the town of Dayton, Tennessee, where in 1925 there was a trial called the Scopes Monkey Trial. Now, in the Scopes Monkey Trial, it was fundamentalist Christians against secular humanists. It was the forces of God. That's the way it was portrayed in the papers. It was God's people against the devil's people. And the issue was evolution. And I've got to tell you, when the trial played out, the fundamentalists took a beating. There were great attorneys on both sides, and it was quite a struggle, and it really devolved into more of a sideshow than anything else. But this fellow went back there to uncover something about the people that still live in that city. How do they feel about it now? And are they still fundamentalist Christians? And he met a lot of them. It irritated him. In fact, over and over again in his story, he talks about how he thought they were going to be a bunch of ignorant imbeciles, but they turn out to be the nicest people he's ever met. Along the way, he details, because it is a memoir of his life, about how he grew up, and it wasn't good. He grew up around greed and ugliness. He grew up around alcoholism and drugs and suicide in his family. People in his family were brilliant. They were scientists. They were lawyers. They were doctors. They were teachers. But they were miserable, and he is a miserable person, and he admits that. He talks about all of the things that he lived through that have made his life hollow and, and, and not much fun. As I read this story of his pain and his story, I thought about how my life doesn't know anything about his life. Sometimes when I read a book, I try and put myself in there and and compare myself to somebody in that book. And as I did that, I realized that this man's family is completely fractured by drug use and alcoholism. But mine isn't. His family is ruined and his life is ruined by sex out of bounds and suicide and wreckage in his spirit, but mine isn't. His home, he says, is someplace he does not want to go back to. I'd rather be home than anywhere. I'm not a better person than Matthew Chapman. I'm certainly not more talented, I'm not smarter, and I'm not deserving of better things. But when you come to Christ, there's so much that you never have to experience. That's what John is talking about as he records Jesus' words in the 11th chapter of this second, the 11th verse of this second chapter of Revelation when he talks about this thing called the second death. You will never experience that because you belong to Christ. It's a second separation And this time it's from God. You're never going to get back to God if you're part of that second separation 
And that's what makes hell so hellish, is God is not there. It's a vacuum of any and all that is good and godly and precious and worthwhile. It's not there. And that's why it's hell. It's an absence of God is what some imagine as freedom. Oh, if I could get free of God, I would be just so happy if he didn't tell me what to do. But what some imagine as a freedom, absence from God, it becomes the ultimate prison to be absent from the one that made you. The point that's being made here is this church is telling us that there is so much you will never have to experience because you belong to Christ. Now, what does Smyrna say to Fairfax? There's one more thing. It's saying to us that faithfulness, listen, is more valuable than you can imagine. In that 10th verse, it talks about a thing called the crown of life that will be given to those that are faithful. You know the sad story of Saul, the first king of Israel. He's instructed by the Spirit of God through the prophet to go and locate this nation of people, a tribe called the Amalekites that were beyond redemption in their wickedness and in their rebellion. They were so bad that the only thing that could be done with them was get rid of them. And so Saul and his army were dispatched to do that and told, don't leave one left. Don't bring back any spoils of war. Don't bring back any of the animals. Don't bring back any of their possessions. Destroy it all and destroy them all. Now, it sounds harsh to our ears. But let me remind you that if you fast forward in the story of Israel, There is one genocidal maniac by the name of Haman that concocts a scheme to kill every Jew on the planet. That's the story of the book of Esther. Haman was the one surviving Amalekite. That's what one Amalekite could do. Could you imagine what an entire tribe of them could do to God's people? Now it begins to make sense. He was told to go and destroy that entire tribe, and he went, and he did. He had success. He defeated them in battle, but he brought back the king as a captive in a cage, and he brought back some of the livestock. And when the prophet of God heard the sound of the animals approaching, when there should not have been the sound of spoils of war, he went to Saul and asked him, what do you think you're doing? Saul had in mind a great parade with him at the forefront as the great conquering hero. That's why he needed the king in a cage, but he had been told to kill that king and destroy all the animals he had not done either because he wanted a great victory lap. He made some feeble excuse to the prophet. He said, I was going to use all of that for a great sacrifice to God. And the prophet told him, God doesn't desire your sacrifice. He desires obedience more than sacrifice. Faithfulness is more valuable than you can imagine to the heart of God. We hear from time to time about celebrities in the entertainment world who who live a corrupt lifestyle, but they try and do one thing just to legitimize their life, and they spend three or four or five or ten million dollars in building a hospital somewhere in Africa, and it's a great sacrifice that they want people to know about. But that sacrifice is not what God is interested in. It's faithfulness. It's staying close to Him. That's what God wants. 
You can keep your sacrifice because he can build his own hospitals. And for sure, he knows how to make his own sacrifices. He doesn't need ours. But there's a crown of life, we're told, for faithfulness, for sticking with him. He says, be faithful your whole life long unto death, and you'll receive the crown of life. Now, there are two things that you need to know about your crown as we wind this up. Number one, your crown is for certain. Your crown, it is certain. Jesus says, I will give you a crown of life. And that's the same one, let me remind you, who says, I will never leave you. It's the same one that says, I will give you rest. It's the same one who says to the one who comes to me, I will never cast you out. He's the same one who says to someone who's unclean that comes to him and says, will you heal me? He says, I will be clean. The same one that says, I will give you the crown of life. He says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will be your shade. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. That's the same one that says, I will give you a crown. Listen, it's for certain. And there's another thing you need to know about your crown. It's this, that it fits just right. It's a perfect fit, your crown. Now, what makes it a suitable reward, this crown? Remember what they said about us. You're poor. You're poor people because you believe you're ignorant. Oh, you poor people. They said we are poor, and the Lord says, I know your poverty. They said you were poor, but now you've got a crown. You're not poor. Think of the poorest Christian you know. Think of the guy on the freeway ramp with the cardboard sign. Think of that guy. If you could see that guy right now today as he will appear one minute after he leaves this world. Think of the dirtiest guy tucked under a bridge somewhere. Or think of the poorest, most ragged bag lady you've ever seen. If that lady belongs to Christ, if you saw her standing fully redeemed, Right now, as she will one day appear, brought back, glorified, as she'll appear in the next world, you would be tempted right now to fall down and worship her. That's how glorious she will be. A crown, you see, is a right reward because you're going to be rich. You're going to be rich. And that's a reward that fits. The crown fits too. Because the Lord wears a crown. I wear a crown, he says. You wear a crown. That's what it means for being faithful in difficulties, faithful when attacked, faithful, it says, even unto death. We belong with the one who wears a glittering crown. It fits. And then finally, we talk about crowns when we're talking about sports standouts. Really exceptional athletes. There's the heavyweight crown and the welterweight crown. We, we talk about different athletes being the king, the prince. There are even roller derby queens, right? Athletes in ancient days, athletes today, they qualify for crowns. We even talk about exceptional horses winning a triple crown. Crowns. Crowns because you came through the conflict. You didn't desert, you didn't quit, and you get a victor's crown. You fought and you won, and you get a crown. It fits. As we close, if I could just for a minute 
catch your attention and, and let you see that it is to your everlasting advantage to suffer for Christ. To be faithful even when it's difficult. Even when you're misunderstood. It's worth it because you gain the crown of life, you see. A man was dying. He'd gone into the doctor on what he thought was a routine visit. He did not feel well, but while he was there, he quickly got much worse. And now he's dying. He's on the doctor's examining room table, and he's dying. Now, fortunate for him, his doctor is a believer, a Christian. And so the man asks the doctor, please tell me something about the place where I'm going. And the doctor fumbled when he, when he was asked that question. He's a medical man, he's a scientist, and now he's being asked the spiritual question, tell me something about the place where I'm going. And he fumbled for a bit until he heard a scratching at his door into the office. And he knew what it was. It was his dog. You see, before the patient had come in, as sick as he was, he had let the dog out. He left the dog outside. But somehow the dog had gotten in the building and he heard the doctor's voice and now he's scratching at the door wanting to get in. He doesn't have any idea, the doctor told the man. My scratching dog does not have any idea what's behind the door, but he knows that I'm here. And that's the way it is with us, isn't it? Even as faithful believers, we have very few clear ideas what lies beyond that door, don't we? But we know that the Master is there, and He's got a crown in His hand. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.